0: Fill to Capacity. Crazy good stories and timely topics. Podcasts for people too stubborn to quit and too creative not to make a difference. Inspiring, irreverent, and informative. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Pat Benincasa, and welcome to Phil capacity. Today's episode, Talking Teen Mental Health During COVID, Insights and Connections. My guests are Sue Abderholden, Executive Director of NAMI Minnesota, that's N-A-M-I, National Alliance on Mental Illness, and Jody Nelson, Executive Director of Change Incorporated, so I'd like to welcome you. And uh, we've got a lot to talk about.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Oh, Great my pleasure. Meeting. So to begin, Sue, would you just tell us briefly what is NAMI and what does it do?
1: Sure. So NAMI is a statewide grassroots organization dedicated to improving the lives of children and adults with mental illnesses and their families. And we do that by providing education, support, and advocacy free education classes for family members so they can understand what's happening, you know, suicide prevention, classes to employers, you know, that type of thing, peer-led support groups, individual advocacy, and then advocacy at the legislature.
0: Whoa, that's a lot that you do. Okay, Jody, what is Change Incorporated?
2: Sure. So Change, Inc. is a community-based nonprofit organization. We have two offices, one in Northeast Minneapolis, which is the location of our outpatient clinic. And then we are also located on the west side of St. Paul in a building that's historically known as Guadalupe Alternative Program. So GAP School is located here. That's where I'm at at the moment. And so we have an alternative high school for young people ages 16 to 24. And then we are also involved primarily in school-based mental health, Okay. Uh, in the Twin Cities. We are providing services in about 30 schools in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And then we're also the lead agency in Ramsey County for the DHS Schooling to Mental Health Grant. So we work within five districts, I believe, and with about nine other providers in Ramsey
0: County. Wow. Okay. So let's just jump in here. Adolescence is a time of rapid physical development and deep emotional changes. And it's in the context of school, family, and friends. Peer groups, social interactions are a critical part of this development. Then the pandemic stops everything. We have lockdowns, distance learning, families dealing with COVID, job and routine loss. So How did this pandemic affect teen mental health? You want to jump in?
1: Well, globally, I will just say, and it's not just in the U.S. or in Minnesota, but our children and our youth really were probably impacted the most. They don't have much in their toolbox to really address what was going on. And as adults, I mean, we know that the rates of depression and anxiety worldwide, according to the World Health Organization, went up over 25%. So you have the things that were happening to the children and you also had the things that were happening to the adults around them. And I always kind of talk about when we, when the pandemic first hit in March of 2020, we were all like, we're in this together, right? We've got this. Mm -hmm. It's going to be over in June. And then June happened and we were like, okay, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon and we don't know how many miles. And I think it's really hard for any of us to live with that kind of uncertainty And then you add the stressors of, you know, we're not used to being with our family 24 seven, to be honest, people trying to work and go to school in a small apartment with bad internet, trying to take care of elderly relatives. And then you had all that ambiguous loss, right? I mean, you had teenagers who didn't get a high school graduation or didn't go off to college like they wanted. You had weddings postponed, even had funerals postponed. And that ambiguous loss was also just really tough to deal with. So that's kind of the global, but I know Jody, you can give much more of the specifics about teens.
2: Yeah, I am seeing them up close and personal here. You're exactly right, Sue, and I. We actually here at at Gap School, we pick a theme every year. And and of course, time is so strange, but that first year, actually, we had chosen we're all in this together because we were a merged agency at the time. So it wasn't even about COVID. And then when COVID shut everything down, of course, we learned that we are not really all in this together and that some of us are in a different size boat and some of us mm-hmm. aren't even in the boat. So, you know, certainly paying attention to people's needs then. I think the the first year of really lockdown and the te- telehealth and the mental health side of things and then distance learning, I, I really felt that first year we were all on an adrenaline rush and kind of, you know, everybody kind of standing up is what the phrase is, standing up and pivoting. and all of that business. And, but I think for me, actually going into the second year has been, you know, I really have to talk about my own attitude. Mm -hmm. And I think for young people, the, you know, the in and out, the closed, it's open, we get to, oh no, now we don't get to. So it's, you know, just feeling the rug, I think pulled out from underneath them so much of the time, I, I would say, and this speaks to like some of the young people that are dropped out or kind of forced out of the public system that are here in all alternative school, I'm just seeing that sort of, and I don't know if the right phrase, Sue, would be kind of, you know, delayed development, but, you know, they haven't had those developmental, and just, I'm just have such a, a, more of an awareness of how school does create those routines and rituals for our sort of developmental markers, and that, really got blown out I'll, I'll just give you a quick example we were referred here to two young people from the public system for problematic sexual behaviors and and in and sort of getting to know them and what was going on for them really basically they had a couple years of not knowing how to hook up they didn't know how to flirt they didn't know how to let a girl know maybe they were interested and i i think just as they talk about you know what young people were doing out there trying to figure it all out without the context of school in which to like, you know, have that socialization. Things went a little off the rails and it just, and I was grateful to, to work with them because it it did not take much to get that back on track. You know, I think in terms of society, it could have gone different for those young people had there not been some caring adults that could sit down and say, now what are you doing? Yep. And how are you mm-hmm. making
0: sense of that? So... Well, across the board, I know what teaching last January to March and talking to other educators, what we all were seeing is developmentally, if they were supposed to be 11th graders, they were really more like ninth graders. If, you know, so whatever age they got hit when the pandemic started, it seems like kids stopped there and they were pulled out of that school environment where they learn how to behave, how to be cool what to say how to hang out that whole thing coming of age they missed out a year and a half almost two years so they don't know that they're behind a year and a half but they're acting out and that brings me to the next question what are some of the warning signs that a teen is in distress is having some serious problems what would you say
1: I'm
2: wondering if I could back up to to Pat your comment that they're acting out, because I I would also like to point out in as we talk about mental health of teens or young people, we often talk about uh, young people who are internalizing Mm -hmm. and are not so scary to adults, but there's also the student that's or the young person that's externalizing and is raging or very angry. Yeah. and you know and that could be the flip side of as who's talking about grief and loss or sadness or worry or what have you but i i think in general david brooks early on in the new york times talked about the five crises that we're living through so there's the pandemic and then also clearly there's the social justice piece yeah. and the environment and the politics and all kinds of things and my hunch is, at least for teenagers and raging teenagers is that they're they're angry at adults And I think that they have, you know, conscious or unconscious, but I think that they have a sense that adults are, adults are messed up. They don't have it. They don't got it. Mm -hmm. And so you send them back into schools with in this past year, particularly middle schools and high schools with, you know, school staff that one are either missing because they, they are on COVID restrictions or their own kids can't go to school or what have you and the adults are not their well-being is not, yeah. not where we would want it to be so then I think in my opinion that's why we see a lot of teenagers that are you know acting disrespectful or mm-hmm. you know, not being compliant or not coming or racing their car or whatever it is that they're doing so
1: I think we also see a lot of the kind of crabbiness that's Kind of somewhat normal for teens, except that the intensity and the length of time is a lot longer. And we are getting certainly a lot of those kinds of calls, but also calls from parents who are really worried about those that are internalizing it, right? Like the child doesn't want to go back to school, doesn't want to see anyone, you know, wants to just kind of be in their room and be isolated from everyone. And that also, I think is really scary. And I think we've forgotten it's it's over 200,000 children lost their caregiver during this time. Mm -hmm. That is a lot of loss. That's abnormal, right? And so losing a parent during the pandemic has also been really difficult for kids at a time when, you know, telehealth didn't work for a lot of kids. And so even if we were able to try to connect them to services, it didn't, it didn't go over as well for, for some kids, it worked. The one thing I do want to mention is kind of the flip side is that for some kids, not going to school was easier. Yes. You know, kids who were bullied, kids who didn't fit in, kids maybe on the autism spectrum, where they, you know, weren't good at picking up cues from their fellow students and things like that. That it was actually a safer and more welcoming environment to be sitting at home behind yeah. the screen. And some of them, I think they're going to just switch to online learning permanently yeah. because it just felt like a, a much safer space for them.
0: I'd like to go in the direction of self-harm. What is self-harm? What does it look like? And does self-harm lead to suicide?
3: to Capacity is brought to you by one of the most celebrated persons in history, Joan of Arc. How about carrying a bit of Joan's courage with you all the time? You can with the Joan of Arc scroll medal designed by award-winning artist Pat Benincasa. With loving attention to detail, Joan has banner in hand and is charging off the scroll-shaped metal with the words, Be at my side. This beautiful brass alloy metal is ideal for holiday or special occasion gifts. Don't wait. Capture a bit of history and inspiration today. Visit wwwpatbenincasa art dot com. Now back to the podcast. I'll
2: speak to what I know about that. I'm not an expert on on that by any means. I've certainly worked with young people who have engaged in different kinds of self harm, and I supervise a number of therapists who have that experience as well. I don't know that that leads to suicide. I don't believe that it does. I think for a number, uh, and particularly at at what age we're talking about, for me makes me think about anxiety. What are they being so anxious about? What are their fears? What are their concerns? For some young people, I, I had young one person tell me, this is how I know that I'm alive. You know, this makes me feel alive. You know, otherwise I'm sort of deadened. I'm sort of numb to things. I practice a form of therapy called internal family systems that talks about parts, protective parts and you know our vulnerable parts. And I think of self-harm as a actually a protective part that, sometimes, like I said, is letting the client know that they're alive. So that's just my sort of limited experience. Sue, so what what do you know about that?
1: Yeah, again, not an expert. I, you know, I think it's such a worrisome thing for parents, though, to see, to try to understand. And, and it isn't something you should just let say, okay, well, that's what they're doing. I mean, you really need to make sure that you get that child help, frankly, right away, because you don't want this to really become such an ingrained kind of thing. The one thing I worry about is that when you have a, a young person who, you know, who is feeling so numb, that's what they need to do, that I do worry that they become so depressed that then sometimes, and feeling like they can't stop that then suicide may look like the only option. Uh, Suicide is a tough one in kind of knowing who will actually attempt or not. Um, One of the things we always tell families, there's a lot of research about means restriction. And so you really want to make sure that Mm -hmm. uh, anything that you have that could be ingested or hurt the child is, is actually locked up with a key. Uh, Not a number lock because they know exactly what number you're going to use, like your birthday or the street address. So you want a key. I mean, I've known parents who have put it in a a kind of a, a, one of those medication boxes or locked file, little kind of file cabinet thing that you can carry around and put it in the trunk of their car to really try to keep those kinds of things out of the house, not be able to access it.
0: That leads me to another group. I'd like to talk about marginalized teens. Teens struggling with gender identity, the LGBTQ struggle, the bullying. So, those kids that are feeling on the periphery already. I saw that the CDC reported that lesbian, gay, trans, bisexual youth, and female youth have a greater level of poor mental health, as well as emotional abuse by a parent or caregiver, and that these groups also attempted suicide at a higher rate. Will you speak about these marginalized kids?
2: I'll say a little bit about that. One, in some of my experience, speaking back to when Sue was talking about some kids have thrived during COVID and distance learning, and I'm aware of some of the youth in those populations that, you know, had a little breather from pressures and bullying Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And I think to the degree that they are are and have been able, whether through social media or, you know, let's not kid ourselves that teenagers didn't hook up anywhere and stay home the whole time. You know, I think to the degree that they have a community and are connected to a community to, and to peers that helped as well. But I do think we talked a lot, those of us connected to schools, to the fact that with young people not in schools, we didn't have our eyes on them. And and that's true for, you know, just all kinds of young people that come from, you know, whatever home environment that might be challenged that might not, you know, have, you know, all of the resources that we wish that they had. And so it got kind of scary, I would say, to uh, to not really know our most kind of at risk isn't the right word, but, you know, young people who might be at risk of, you know, school failure, certainly and community failure and family failure. It, It was just hard to have eyes on them.
0: I can tell you that teaching arts high school for over 30 years, the art students would often say when they go to an arts high school, this is the first time I'm not being picked on. I'm not being bullied because all the kids are, are art types, they're, you know, the, the singers, the mm-hmm. art makers, you know, you name it. So if they come to school and they're jammy bottoms and, you know, hair spike, no one cared. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't about that. They were respected for being mm-hmm. creative people. And when they could not be in school, they lost their community. So that was a group that really struggled with the fact that they couldn't perform. They had difficulty making art at home. So this whole thing about marginalized. And also, I think that the pandemic really accentuated class and race structure that kids of color we struggling with mental health issues and the fact that like rural kids didn't have internet access in some areas. So it seemed like the pandemic really magnified a lot of the, I don't know how to say it, the weak spots in our system, in our schools, in our care.
1: And I think that was really in some ways impacted by kind of outside of school. So when you look at who caught COVID at a higher rate, hospitalized at a higher rate and died at a higher rate, it was people from the BIPOC community. And so naturally, then those children would also be more impacted and tended to be people who uh, bus drivers, uh, people working in grocery stores, you know, in nursing homes. So people who really didn't get to work from home had to go out every day. And so, you know, when you're worried about your parent and you may be in charge of also the distance learning for any younger siblings. That was a lot. And also underestimate the impact of George Floyd's murder, you know, on young people and just the, you know, it's just a whole horrible, another traumatic event to add to their lives.
2: We were in my agency, both in terms of the school-based work in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and then our own alternative program, certainly the first year I just felt sort of desperate about basic needs. I'm like, do they have food? Do they have food? Do they have food? And certainly got involved in also given the social unrest, got it, it trained in some just crisis counseling, FEMA crisis counseling. So it wasn't deep, you know, anything fancy diagnostic assessment it was like, go see if they have food and assess for these sorts of things. And I, I wonder as we go forward, and we talk a lot in different venues about increased mental health needs, I think the needs are so great that, you know, we're going to need to be much more creative and have a continuum of how we're going to provide those services for kids and families and communities. So if we can take some of the lessons learned from the last two years and do some things differently.
0: And it's for even before COVID, there weren't enough beds, counselors, health facilities, school supports, to meet the needs with kids struggling with mental health issues. And then the pandemic hits. And again, it seems to magnify the shortage of those things. So how do we reinvent meeting the needs, kids in trouble? I mean, it seems like the pandemic is showing the weak side. So we have to get creative to find ways to, to make sure those kids eat, make sure they can get to a counselor or mental health facility if that's needed post COVID. I mean, I think one thing
1: just to remember is that, you know, before the pandemic had, you know, I would like to say our mental health system isn't broken. It was never built, but we were putting the pieces in place. School-linked mental health is a wonderful example in creating psychiatric residential treatment facilities, yeah. trying to expand a sort of community treatment teams to younger age children. We were putting all these things in place and we had workforce shortages. We had those and we were doing some things to try to address it. But what the pandemic did is it just, it blew everything up. And so not only are the needs greatly increased, but the number of people working in the field have decreased. You know, you've had people that have just said, you know, because maybe they have to take care of their own children, right? Who have just dropped out of the workforce. So they were older, which we knew was one of the problem in our workforce is that we had a lot of people who were older and just decided to retire. And so that has actually really hurt us more. There are a number of things that are moving at the legislature that we're hoping, of course, will pass to really look at increasing our workforce. So how do we grow our own? So people who are maybe working in a mental health clinic or a residential facility, they know what the work is like because they're with the kids every day. And it's like, well, so why not pay for them to go get their graduate degree? Yeah. Um, we know when people graduate, a lot of them don't go on to get their license, almost 50%. Why? Because they have to pay for supervision and they have to find supervision. Well, Let's pay for supervision. Let's make it really easy for them. A bill that we passed last year is we're paying for BIPOC mental health professionals to become supervisors so that we have more that can connect with people who are just finishing up their degrees. So there's lots of good ideas out there that, you know, we're trying to get across. You know, even when we look at psychiatry, we have more people that want to go into psychiatry than we have psychiatric slots,
3: residency slots.
1: So we have enough people who want to do the work we don't have enough training programs for them. There's a lot kind of mixed all in there. There's not like one thing that we can do, but we can't just put more money into our system if we don't have more people to do the work. And I don't know, Jody, if you've seen problems in terms of hiring enough people to carry out the work. But
2: well, yeah, I, everything you're saying, Sue, I, I feel like we're the we could be a case study for that. And yet, good news is that a lot of people, I think, Sue uh, and I are, have been working at this for some time, and and there's a lot of other folks as well that have. You know, we've got some. I think we've got some wisdom in the state. And certainly some experience to draw upon. And there's a lot of good professional relationships between people that I think if any state can figure it out, it could be Minnesota. Yeah, there's just a lot to do. And I was department chair of a marriage and family therapy program at Argosy University that closed just before the pandemic. I was able to you know, cherry pick interns there for a while and really promote school based, which is a love of mine because I both love education and therapy to really promote young people going into that particular part of the field. And a concern I have now after the last couple of years, particularly this last year, is some people who were doing a really terrific job in school-based work, which is its own unique setting, have said to me, boy, after this year, I don't, I don't know that I want to continue to work in schools. So I know there's almost a re a restarting. We're going to do a school-based conference again this fall at which we've missed for a few years. And we were just talking about the theme for that. And it really needs to be restart, renew, reinvigorate, resilience. And so I think for folks, just being up for that work of re-knitting some things together.
0: Do you think that the pandemic has changed the stigma of mental health illness?
1: Yes. So, so I kind of think about it in two different ways. So We've actually tried moving away from using the word stigma, because when we talk about why won't someone share that they're struggling with their mental health, they're afraid of discrimination. They're Mm -hmm. afraid that if they're an adult, that they won't get the job or they won't get a raise or be promoted. As a young person, maybe you're afraid people aren't going to understand and they're Mm going to, like if you're with schizophrenia, you know, oh, you're going to shoot me or something Mm -hmm. like that. So I think they're afraid of people's reactions Mm -hmm. and kind of discriminatory attitudes But what we have seen during the pandemic is most everyone has felt anxious or depressed during these last two years. I have never, ever in my life seen employers wanting and caring about the mental health of their employees. I mean, truly caring, not just putting out a little, you know, cute slogan, right. But, but wanting to know, okay, what else can we do? Because we get those calls, we do a small training uh, for employers and get way too many requests that we can actually fill. So, so I think there is greater discussion about it, which I think is great, even at the Capitol. I mean, they're talking about it all the time. So that's, if I can try to pull anything good out of the last two years, I would say it's people are much more willing to talk about it and are much more empathetic about it because they've had those days where they felt like they were almost verging on a panic attack because they just didn't, I couldn't control what was going on.
2: I think that's right.
0: So how do we, how do we get teens to ask for help, especially when we're in this pandemic time where some are coming out of hybrid learning, long distance learning. Uh, There's an uptick with COVID again. So we're not really sure if we're going to be in school, not in school. How do we get kids to ask for help if they're struggling?
3: One of the
2: kind of metaphors that I have in my mind, and this, this speaks to caring adults in the lives of kids. So one is I want to support caregivers, whether that's teachers, parents, guardians, grandparents, whoever, and the metaphor is when you're on the airplane and they show you how to use the mask, the oxygen mask before the plane takes off. And they tell you to put the mask on the adult before you put it on the child. And so, you know, one thing is in our work is, you know, I just want to pack around young people as many caring adults, whether that's coaches, mentors, assistants, you know, teachers that are are there and available for for a teen or a a friend of a teen in in need Mm -hmm. to be able to speak to an adult to say, you know, my friend needs help or I need help. The other thing, though, I think, too, just given the developmental, you know, tasks of teenagers is just really being able to support those peer relationships and, and providing opportunities where young people have space and maybe some some training and some support to be able to really be that sort of listening ear for one another, because I I think there is a lot that can be addressed by a good and solid, you know, social peer group that is supported in that way and does not have to even raise to an adult or raise to a professional um, if we can support young people in being able to be really that, you know, what, what people mostly need and what teenagers need is somebody to listen to them. Yep sort of creating that that peer opportunity.
1: We do a class for high school students called Ending the Silence. We've reached... Over 7,000 kids since July 1st. And uh, we'll go to any high school. You know, it's okay if they can't give us a small honorarium, we'll just mm-hmm. go. And it really does help kids to kind of understand okay, so here's some of the symptoms, here's what I should be worried about in myself or my friends, here's what to do. And so we do lay that all out. And in Minnesota, as you know, teachers at least have to have you know at least one hour of continuing education on suicide prevention so that they know what to do if the student comes up to them. And so I think that's one thing. And pretty much when my staff go out, especially in person, but even when we were doing it virtually, you know, they'd get messages saying, well, I'm really worried about my friend. And so who should I tell, you know, and things like that. So I think it does help to raise awareness. The other thing I think also, though, is that we just have to assume that they're all struggling. And so kind of going into a classroom and saying, okay, you know what, we're going to do relaxation breathing before we even start teaching. We're all going to do, you know, a five-minute meditation because some of those tools, I mean, we never think about breathing, right? But when I go out to even employers and I have everyone take some deep breaths with me and slow and say, okay, can you feel the stress go out when you kind of whoosh out, you know, with your breath? And they're like, Oh, yeah. I'm like, okay. this is a free thing that you can do going up and down the elevator, honestly, you know, to kind of calm your own self down. So I I think also just assuming that all the kids in that room could use some of these skills to help them. Now, that's obviously it's not going to work with a kid with serious depression. But at a moment when they're really struggling, if they can remember some of those tools, it can still help them get through it a little bit.
0: So for parents wanting to help their teen, there's sort of this elephant in the room. How do you tell the difference between teen angst and moodiness and serious depression or self-harm behavior? And I'm asking this from a parent point of view.
1: We just usually tell parents it's intensity and length of time. And Jody, why don't you add to that?
2: Yeah. And I would say, you know, reach out and, and don't put it on yourself that you also have to be your child's therapist you are the parent and there are places that you can ask that question so i would i would also encourage parents who are at the point of wondering which is this i would reach out to a professional of some sort to ask that question you know to just consult because that's what we yep. do i mean we do that all day long in our profession right i mean i oftentimes i'm not you know even in making a diagnosis or whatever i don't know there's 10 things here so i i'm, I'm going to consult to figure out you know get some other brains in the room but i mean if you know your own Young person, they're not who they were yesterday. You, know, you want to ask some questions about that. Now, you know, some of that is, is just growth and development and teenagers can be all kinds of things, but there's just been a, a radical change. They used to sleep a lot. Now they don't sleep at all. They do not eat. Now they eat a lot, you know, paying attention to those patterns too.
1: I always say to trust your gut. I mean, if you feel like something is wrong, it probably is. And it might not be something super serious. They might just need to really just talk to someone, you know, do a little therapy and some things like that. But our parent radar is usually pretty good at detecting something that's off.
0: Good point. So let's take it from a teen point of view. The teen that feels like they don't have a trusted adult in their life. The teen that's really isolating in their head and things are going on. Are there support networks for these teens? I mean, is there a hotline? How do, where do they go? Who do they reach out to?
2: I'll speak to school-based work. And and that's not the panacea for everything. And that, you know, there's one or two people in the school, but that's kind of part of the reason to embed uh, folks in schools. It's that it's the, you know, I kind of think of it as a social justice issue for teenagers is it's access. So, Mm -hmm. you know, where, where are they? Whether that's school or that community center or street corner or wherever, and let's let's go to where they are. Mm-hmm. When, when we started at Edison High School about 20 years ago, the model in school-based work was that a social worker needed to refer to you. And we made the case and all the way to, in Minneapolis to the lawyer who said, yeah, it makes sense to me, that we wanted to almost do a walk-in situation at Edison High School so that young people could walk themselves in. Or a friend could walk their friend in that mm-hmm. we, we wanted to reduce that barrier, that school social worker who, you know, has 500 kids on their caseload, we don't want that to be a barrier to that young person being able to get some help. So I think as, as we can think about what are the barriers to access, that's what we want to think about.
1: There aren't many kind of online peer groups and things like that. We don't have peer support groups for people under the age of 18, just because, frankly, of the liability issues. Yeah. We have a class that we teach called Progression for uh, teenagers and young adults to kind of help them think through these things. But the other thing, and I tell parents to do this, is to put the crisis text line on your refrigerator at 741-741. At some point during the year, it'll turn to 988. But for right now, they can just text MN to 741-741, and that's a 24-7 line. Trevor Project also has a number as well, 24-7. And you don't want to have to go looking for it. So just put it on your refrigerator.
0: One of the things I've noticed in teaching in an art studio setting, classroom, kids will be talking to one another as they're working on their projects. And I did observe, I retired from teaching just before COVID. Then I stepped back two years after COVID. And I noticed the difference of night and day that how everything had changed and everything I knew as a teacher, I had to throw out. And I felt like I was uh, landed on on planet new (laughs) and had to really look at the signs and how kids were interacting. And I noticed that they kept their digital device in hand, digital device, pencil or paintbrush. Now, pre-COVID, our teachers say, you know, put away the digital devices, folks. You know, let, let's uh, focus on the... I didn't do that. It was almost like I was looking at a security blanket, that somehow they had to have this device. And when you think about it, for a year and a half, how did they interact? With the device. So I wasn't about to say, don't do that. Somehow it felt like they, they were doing their work, but they had that. And that's a huge change to pre-COVID. Their connection to digital seems necessary. Yeah, Pat, I think you might need to do a PD for teachers
2: because I think you're exactly right. And I think pre-COVID... And certainly in the small alternative school that I'm a part of, there were things about your phone. You need to give up your phone or put your phone here if you don't do this with your phone. Mm-hmm. You know, there was all that business as well as parents and devices and, you know, talking with parents about they're not going to sleep because of all of that connection. But I, I do think that, well, and, you know, I'm sitting here and I've got both of my devices yeah. right here as well. So, yep. <laughs> yeah, <Yep. laughs> so, you know, I feel that as well and, I, you know, that sort of. You know, what's going on in the world and what what have I missed? But I think you're right. And I I have been thinking lately just with the teachers here in this alternative school is we really need to have a fuller understanding of what is the purpose and really just lean into curiosity with young people because it is more pronounced. I mean, we've had people here say, you know, well, I'll just quit school then. And I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to put my phone away. I'll just quit school instead. Yeah, it, it has different meaning and we need to figure out what that is.
0: And it's not it's not a bad like. I don't look at it as being a bad thing. I was more curious that they really need this. The other thing I noticed, they they talked nonstop to each other. Again, in a studio arts classroom, high school, kids will talk to each other, but this was frenetic. And I, again, if this was before COVID, I'd say, "Uh, excuse me, can we just kind of rotate that focus back to the piece Mm -hmm. and playfully kind of urge them? I didn't do it this time because I saw... I mean, from across the room to each other, they were having these conversations. I thought, whoa, what the hell is going on here? So I I felt like Margaret Mead. I was kind of watching this happen. And then I noticed the quality of need. They had to connect with each other. And so, again, I didn't do what I did before. I just let them, unless it was, you know, sometimes art conversations, I have to remind them that if it's cringeworthy, we do not want to hear it. And you kind of dial them back a bit, but it was more that they had to see each other, talk to each other, make eye contact, get up and walk over and talk to each other. And somehow I, I thought that was okay. You know, they were getting the work done. Yeah.
1: My only worry is that we've also seen that that becomes the only way to interact you know yeah. when they're at home or whatever, and so I do think doing things with people in person is still like really important. Those are skills they need. It's not the same to text uh, no. to someone as it is to be talking to them in person and doing something together. And so that's my only worry in all of this.
2: I think that's true for us adults too, Sue. I we had a I had a staff person today that I asked to come, who usually doesn't is works remote on Tuesday, and I asked her to come in. I said, I, I don't want to talk to you through Zoom today. Mm-hmm. I, I want to, we need to talk about this in person. And she actually talked about, you know, she's usually loved her jobs, but she's not wanting to come to work and, you know, all that business. And at the end of just having a face-to-face conversation, she said, and she touched her heart. And she said, I feel so much better. She said, I just feel so much better. And it was just like a, an in-person conversation is all that that took. I'm with you on that. I do think in school, you know, and I'm aware of primarily in middle schools and high schools in the Twin Cities who have had a really rough start just in terms of, you know, behaviors and what have you. And and I think, you know, just that that whole school, i am hearing hearing, maybe you hear this through too, this more talking more about healing centered schools, kind of moving even behind, beyond trauma, but to healing. And I think that whole schools and then classrooms that need to spend some more time here just having young people talk to one another, yeah. giving some space for conversation, giving some space for, okay, now this is how we do school. You know, I have to say to people, this is how we do adulting, really mm-hmm. just re- reteaching, giving space to
1: that. I think when they decided to open the schools back up last fall, people are like, well, once the kids back into school, they're gonna be fine. It's like, no. They have been through a very traumatic year. They are not going to be just fine. And if you focus on now we're just going to take off where we left off, it's not going to work. We need to help them heal. We need to help them, you know, kind of reconnect. The adults need to reconnect. So I'm not surprised at all that a lot of schools really struggled this year. Yep.
0: And in fact, post-pandemic, if we ever get to post-pandemic, it's almost like we all have to learn how to be in the world again. We have to learn how to be with each other in a physical reality, not mediated, not through the phone, not through these squares, but how to be with each other. And I have to tell you, I was a little nervous about going back into the classroom. I thought, whoa, what the hell is this? I, I was nervous. I'm always nervous. My first day of class, it's like falling in love all over again. It's like you don't think you know anything and the new class starts. It's, it's that kind of joy. But I found myself thinking, how, how am I going to be in the space with these kids? That seems so real, because I've been in the, in the house for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So as adults who left the workplace and are working at home, it's not just kids. Kids can't look at their parents and saying how their parents are modeling this, because we're all in the same boat here trying to figure out
1: how are we going to be in the world? Think of all the signs that are up saying, please be nice. Please be nice to my employees. These are the ones that showed yep. up. There's a clinic on the first floor and it has a thing. Please be nice. We're doing the best that we can. And just think about what kind of world are we in that we have to remind people to be nice. And I think that kind of general feeling that the kids feel it too. Yep. And it's it's not a good thing. And I think as adults, we need to get ourselves in, you know into shape, honestly, and to stop acting that way. We yes. model it.
0: And when those kids see this acting out and people having temper tantrums because they have to wear a mask on an airplane and they act out, whoa, the, the kids looking at an adult behaving this way. And we've had people politicizing the, the pandemic. I mean, all of this was acting out to the foreground of George Floyd and the kind of frustration these kids are feeling, you know, the mm-hmm. adults aren't in charge. <laughs> They're worse than us. When right. You look at it. But then right. again, the flip side. I know working with teachers who worked during the pandemic really worked on healing. They really worked on reaching out and checking in with their students. Mm -hmm. And that's the part of what the pandemic brought out in a lot of folks, knowing that they had to reach out, had to do more than just, it wasn't about teaching. I felt like I wasn't teaching art. I was really being with students. We are all learning how to be together as creatives. And these kids are learning how to be creative in real space, real time, in front of each other and sharing their ideas and who they are. And that powerful, wonderful time of high school is when they forge that identity of who they'll be the rest of their life. Oh, my God, that it doesn't get any more powerful than that. So coming full circle, maybe there were some dark angels in this pandemic that we reassess education, how we reach out to students, dealing with trauma, because we're all traumatized by this.
2: Yeah, in the first the first year of the pandemic, what I said to the alternative school staff was, I'm just looking for two things, engagement and equity. You wanted to make sure that every single kid had the chance to learn, and so that meant everybody gets a laptop. Whoever needs a hotspot will get that for them, you know, that the whole sort of digital piece that we've And broadband piece that we've learned about, and then just do everything you can to keep them on our planet. And Mm -hmm. and our staff took a day a week where they went out to people, students' homes, and brought brought the meals, and you know just wanted to eyeball to eyeball. I think that's what. What are the two or three things that you're going to just? Those are your values, and you're going to just beat the drum on those and create. You had said community earlier, Pat, and I think that's, you know, really what we want to build and support and maintain is that communal commitment to being a community builder and and being able to be in community.
0: So we do wind down this conversation. If you had anything to say to parents struggling with how to be with their teen, what would you say to them?
1: It's kind of a tough one, you know, because definitely love them and show them show them that you love them. I think that, you know, hugely important it doesn't matter what you're doing, right? You're going to love your kid. And I think just really listen to them, really watch them, you know, really kind of understand what's going on. And and I, I think it's been hard to kind of give them the freedom that perhaps they kind of need at this age because of what's happening in the world around us. So that part, I think, is really scary. I Boy, there's no easy roadmap out of this, to be honest. I mean, dealing with teenagers, having had to dealing with teenagers before the pandemic was tough. I mean, teenagehood is it's a hard time, right? Because they're supposed to be pulling away from you. So then they do things to make it easier to pull away from you. Right. And so it's a, it's just a, it's a hard, it's a hard time to get through no matter what. And my kids were, you know, pretty easy as teenagers, but even, even then there were things, right. But I think after the pandemic, after George Floyd's murder, all of that kind of stuff, I think it's just so much harder talk to other parents to make sure you're not alone. We've got videos that you can watch and things like that, that are short become NAMI moments, 15 minutes that, you know, make it easy for parents to watch, but I don't have a clear roadmap for you. That's for sure. Yep. I don't know. Jody. too. Uh,
2: You know, I'm laughing at my, uh, my home office. I have my car office, my home office, all of my offices. I have a card from my mother. She's since passed, but it it says the person you are today is my reward for not drowning you when you were 13 (laughs) (laughs) uh, that gives you any idea about my teenage self might seem a little cheesy but one of the things that I've found helpful with parents is Dan Siegel's healthy mind platter and he's done a thing you know you think of the food pyramid where you know you have shouldn't eat very many potato chips at the top and there's spinach all over the bottom of the pyramid but his healthy mind platter and this is where I think talking with parents about well-being maybe more than just like mental health but he has seven kind of activities that are about not just teenagers but about well-being and one of the main ones is sleeping and this comes from my experience in alternative education as well is I mean I'm not amazed anymore about young people who are just running in mud and they're not succeeding and I you know find out about what how long they're sleeping at night and they're hardly sleeping at all and so one, you know, just one of the things out of the healthy mind platter is sleep. And I think with teenagers, for, for sure, I'm just always assessing for sleep and talking with parents about is, is are they sleeping? Because I think it kind of can begin there and trying to remove those barriers to them getting a good night's sleep and then build on other things.
0: Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Sue, Abder Holden and Nami and Jody Nelson, Change Incorporated. In fact... Thank you to all of the organizations helping people with mental health issues. Pandemic or not, we are in this life together. And listeners, in the show notes, you will find links to everything we talked about in this podcast. If you get something from Fill to Capacity, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen. So thank you for joining us.